0: A wealthy escrow agent in Arizona goes missing, but returns home days later in a roughed-up condition after escaping his kidnappers. Months later, he is kidnapped again, but this time is found dead in the middle of the desert days later. A death controversially ruled a suicide. Evidence suggests he was working with various mafia families, state law enforcement, federal law enforcement, foreign officials, and possibly even the CIA. What's the real story behind Charles Morgan's actions and subsequent death? Killing. Missing. Hidden. A podcast about. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the next edition of KMH Podcast. Here I am, as always, your buddy Brad, ready to walk you through a rather confusing and bizarre case of murder, or if you believe the police is suicide. But before we get into anything, let's have a little bit of housekeeping. First, remember to listen to the end of this episode for a special announcement. I'm not going to tell you what it is up front. I got to force you to listen to the whole thing. But just know this is going to rank somewhere between getting 15% off your next oil change and being named Sports Illustrated's Athlete of the Year. So, yeah, it's exciting and kind of a big deal. I'm also implementing a new feature this week Reviewer Spotlight. I will try to feature someone who has left a nice little review for us once every two to three weeks. A little shout out to those who have taken the time to shout me out, if you will. This week we have Doc J56, who kindly left the following review. Quote, very intriguing, awesome topic selection, and presented in a format that was easy to follow and understand. Looking forward to hearing more, unquote. Well, thank you very much, Dr. J. Love hearing from our fans and NBA legends. Make sure you leave a review so you can be featured in one of our upcoming episodes. I'll also be giving Dr. J a shout-out on our Instagram page later this week. Speaking of Instagram, please check out that page every Friday as we've been releasing 60-second mystery videos that folks seem to enjoy, and I think y'all will, too. Okay, so let's get to why you're here today. Charles Morgan, a poor man who's at the center of one of the most extraordinary cases we've discussed on this podcast. And I think that's saying something. Charles Chuck Morgan was a 39-year-old living in Tucson, Arizona in 1977. He was the president of a very successful escrow agency. Now, for those of you that don't know, let's talk about what an escrow agent is and what they do. They are the third party to a transaction who holds on to the money, the assets, the paperwork, whatever is being exchanged between two parties while those two folks work out the details of their transaction. So if you come to me and want to buy one of my mini islands, I can give the escrow agent proof of my ownership of the island, the deed. Let him hold on to it. You can give him the money... For the island to show that you're serious for it. And then we work out the details of the contract while he holds on to it. Now, the purpose of escrow agents is, A, it lets folks know that you're serious about a deal if you're willing to hand over several hundred thousand dollars to a third party for them to hold in trust. But they also provide a special duty of loyalty to both sides. Kind of their role in this is to make sure no one gets screwed in a deal. Now, while in most jurisdictions escrow agents can only work with people or corporations, Arizona was very unique in the 1970s. That state allowed an escrow agent to work with what's called a blind trust. So instead of you buying the island from, say, me, you could be buying the island from trust account number 7419982 or whatever. You wouldn't know the person's... Behind the transaction, you would just know it's some sort of trust account that exists. Only the escrow agent would truly know who was on the other side of that deal. That can be certainly inviting in certain situations, and I bet you can guess which sort of element of our society loved the idea of being able to operate this way. These lax escrow laws and the warm climate of Arizona attracted organized crime to multiple towns in Arizona. It's estimated that more than 500 racketeers moved down there during the early 70s. This happened to correlate with an increased number of gangland-style killings ex- Arizona experienced. That is just mind-blowing, isn't it? So how does all this mafia stuff and blind trust tie in with Chuck? Well, it seems that beginning in 1973, Chuck began handling real estate transactions through these blind trusts for at least one mafia family. Chuck likely worked for Ned Warner's group. He may have also worked for the Joe Bonino family. The Bonino family was a little bit famous. They're the mafia that Donnie Brasco infiltrated in New York around this time. Just a little fun aside slash tidbit. After Chuck proved he was a dependable asset, he began handling large gold bullion and platinum transactions, the bulk of which originated out of Southeast Asia, at least on the surface. In reality, there was no real estate or gold or platinum It was simply being moved through several blind trust accounts, so the money appeared to be legitimate if one didn't dig too deep into the transactions. This is what we call money laundering. Now it appears this sort of work went on all over Arizona during the 70s. If you were an escrow agent, you probably laundered some money. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was making tons of money from it. When Chuck's wife asked about all the money laundering that was going on one day, he said, yeah, it's happening around here, but I'm not involved in it. He also cautioned her that the less she knew about exactly what he did, the safer she should be. So here's some free legal, but not really legal advice for you. Anytime someone says the less you know, the better, you should immediately find out everything about what's going on because there is almost certainly some bad dudes on the other side of this statement who won't take the chance that you may not know more than you do should things go south. And you really ought to know what your risk is when someone says that. So, Chuck's first disappearance on March 22nd of 1977, Chuck drove his two daughters to school. Then he vanished. Three days later, at 2 o'clock in the morning, he returned home. But he was in pretty messed up shape. He absolutely could not speak. He was missing a shoe. He had a plastic zip tie around one ankle, and both of his hands were also bound by zip ties. He was bruised up and just looked like a total mess. His wife, Ruth, helped him in, got him free, And while she went to try to help clean him up, he grabbed a pen and notepad and began writing. He claimed that he had been kidnapped and tortured during this period. He also claimed that a strong hallucinogen had been painted down the back of his throat and was warned by his kidnappers that if he swallowed or ingested it in any way, He would die or possibly be driven insane. It was allegedly some sort of agent that would attack and possibly destroy his nervous system. Chuck asked Ruth to hide his car so they wouldn't see that he had made it home and ordered her not to call the police or any medical personnel as he was told it would guarantee that Ruth and their daughters would become a target. So for about a week, Chuck couldn't talk, he couldn't eat, or he couldn't drink anything. He literally had to rely on Ruth to feed him through an eyedropper, carefully avoiding the back of his throat. He sustained himself literally on a few drops of water at a time. During this week, while he was talking slash writing with his wife... He started dropping hints that suggested he actually may be working with the federal government, specifically the Treasury Department, and that's what brought all this bad juju into his life. This little bit of information shocked Ruth. Chuck claimed his kidnappers took all of his Treasury documentation and other pertinent information, however. Chuck absolutely refused to identify who these kidnappers were. He referred to them only as they and them. However, he did state that he was held near the Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix. That airport's about 110 miles away from Tucson. There is some evidence that was discovered that the kidnapping was done to interrogate Chuck about what files he had kept regarding the blind trust transactions where they were stashed, and to also detain Chuck long enough so that mafia agents could recover his copies of those files. Chuck had done upset the wrong person somehow. Once he was recovered, Chuck justifiably became very paranoid. He refused to let anyone drop off or pick up his daughters from school. The school was instructed very specifically that only Chuck or his wife could ever pick his children up. He began regularly wearing a bulletproof vest and started carrying a firearm. He also had this cool little belt buckle that had a hidden knife in it. Chuck told his father he had hidden a letter in his home that his father needed to find if Chuck ever disappeared again, as it would identify who had Chuck. So on to disappearance number two. Sadly, he did disappear again. And this time Chuck did not return. Nine days after his disappearance, a mysterious woman called Ruth and said only, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. And then she hung up the phone. Now, Ruth never called the police, likely because she was scared from what Chuck had told her would happen if she called the police when he first returned home from his first kidnapping. Two days later, however, his body was discovered in the desert, 40 miles from his home. He was wearing his bulletproof vest, but had been shot in the head. Uh, specifically, it was in the back of his head, and it was from his own 357 Magnum, At very close range. The gun was found laying next to him. And there was some evidence that Chuck was on his knees when he was shot and killed. When police searched the scene, they found several bits of oddness. First, Chuck had a $2 bill clipped inside of his underwear. And on this $2 bill was a ton of information. First, there were seven Spanish surnames, beginning with the letters A through G, written along one side of it. Several signers of the Declaration of Independence were also listed and numbered 1 through 7 in the following order. John Hancock, Charles Thomas, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston, Roger Sherman, and John Adams. Ecclesiastes 12 was written on the bill and the 1 and the 8 in the serial number were highlighted. Finally, there was a crude map drawn on the bill showing several roads between Tucson and the Mexican border, and they highlighted the towns of Robler's Junction and Solicity, areas known for drug smoking. Pictures of this $2 bill can be found on the Medium website, and the link to these pictures are in my show notes. There were zero fingerprints at this crime scene, including on Chuck's gun or in his car. Now, Chuck's car contained a variety of weapons and ammunition, as well as several pair of handcuffs and other bizarre things. Interestingly, Chuck's vehicle had been altered in some way so that it could be unlocked and opened from the fender. I looked for an explanation on exactly what had been done to the vehicle, but never found one, and I'm saddened by that. I'm really curious what this meant exactly. Also, and I don't know if this is something that's interesting or worth reporting, but they found in Chuck's car a white handkerchief that contained one of Chuck's teeth, one of his teeth. What the poop is going on here? So, with all this evidence, it's clear the police ruled Chuck's death a murder. I wait, wait. I misspoke. I don't. I'm not murder. Suicide. Yeah, they chalked this up as a suicide. The medical examiner listed Chuck's death as unsolved, which is still an asinine decision. Now, Chuck's left hand showed evidence of gunshot residue, while his right hand was clean. This indicated that if the suicide theory is correct, he used his left hand, which is his non-dominant hand, to reach around and shoot himself in the back of the head while on his knees and then managed to clean the fingerprints off the gun before he died but didn't think to wipe the gunshot residue off of his hand. And this is after he did his little freelance dentistry work. And he felt the need to wear a bulletproof vest so he wouldn't get shot before the suicide? Okay, I mean, this this is... You can tell I don't buy this theory. Not many other people did, including investigative journalist Don Devereux. Now, before we get to Don's role in this story, we've got even more weirdness to, to muddle through. Two days after Chuck's death, an anonymous woman called and spoke with one of the detectives. She referred to herself only as Green Eyes. She claimed to have met with Chuck at a motel shortly before his death. He had with them a briefcase that contained thousands of dollars. He said his plan was to buy himself out of the contract the Mafia had put on his head. Now, police were able to confirm that Chuck had stayed at the Westside Motel at least one night before he was killed, and CCTV filmed him meeting with a woman there. The woman also admitted to being the same person who contacted Ruth shortly before Chuck was found dead police investigated if chuck was having an affair and their results were inconclusive they did learn that chuck was bouncing between motels as if he was trying not to be found shortly after the police cleaned up the crime scene they impounded his car naturally but while the car was sitting in impound it was broken into Shortly after his car was broken into, Chuck's office was ransacked. Three weeks later, two men who claimed to be FBI agents forced their way into Ruth's home. They ransacked the place for hours, but would not say what they wanted, and basically wouldn't answer any of her questions. They eventually left without taking anything. When later contacted, the FBI claimed to have no knowledge of a Charles Morgan. It is possible the men, whoever they worked for, were looking for Chuck's records as it was rumored and later confirmed that he did keep duplicates of all his blind trust transactions. He thought it would buy him some leverage if he ever got in trouble. Chuck often worked together with a real estate agent by the name of Jack Tillman. Tillman reportedly reacted to Chuck's death poorly but was allegedly told by those responsible for Chuck's death that so long as no one said anything about the shooting, no one else had to get hurt. Shortly thereafter, Tillman quit the real estate game and purchased a firearm. He also spoke about the possibility of having to leave Arizona in a hurry. Tillman insisted that Chuck did not kill himself, but was taken down by a hitman because... After Chuck's interrogation during his first kidnapping, the powers that be in the Mafia no longer trusted Chuck. In 1981, Tillman passed away from cancer. Now, Chuck's story actually aired on Unsolved Mysteries in February of 1990. It generated more phone calls and tips than any other segment in the show's history, at least up to that point. I don't know if it still holds the record. Three months later, Doug Johnston was found shot in the left side of his head in his vehicle. Okay, so who is Doug and why does this matter? It's noteworthy because Johnston worked across the street from Don Devereaux's office and drove the exact same car as Devereaux. Now, despite there being no gun at the scene and no gunshot residue on Johnston's hands, this death, too, is ruled a suicide. And again, we have the oddity of Johnston being a righty and the bullet entering into the left temple of his head. Devereaux believes he was the intended target of the hit, since he was the one who was digging up information on this case as a journalist and provided significant Research assistance for unsolved mysteries. A year later, Devereux was contacted by a writer from DC named Danny Casalaro, who claimed to have found information related to Chuck's blind trust transactions. Strangely, Casalaro died before he could send this information to Devereaux. He was found by his housekeeper in the bathtub with 12 deep cuts along his wrist. A note at the scene said, To my loved ones, please forgive me, most especially my son, and be understanding. God will let me in. Casalero's family refused to accept that he committed suicide, particularly in this manner because he was terrified of blood. Also, the suicide note is not written in a manner that you would expect a professional writer to leave a note in. His records that he claimed to have on Chuck were never found, though he had previously described to Devereux that they were very voluminous, octopus-like, meaning that the story had tentacles going in multiple directions, and that the information Chuck had connected the Mafia with various government officials. Also interestingly, the suicide scene was immaculate. Now, Castle body wasn't. He was suffering from multiple bruises and missing several fingernails. But the housekeeper noted that it looked like somebody had taken the time to clean all the blood off the floor and even left a bloody towel behind. Okay, so let's focus on Don Devereux for a little bit. He dived deep into Chuck's life and made lots of interesting discoveries. First, he was the one who was able to confirm that Chuck kept the records of his blind trust transactions. Devereux said he discovered Chuck was doing upwards of a billion dollars of escrow work in bullion and platinum. Yet, it felt like to Devereux that Chuck was more of a tool of the mafia rather than someone with a key role in the organization. He was a nobody for the mob that generated a billion dollars per year. A billion dollars per year, and they probably didn't even remember his name. I mean, <laughs> wowzers! right? There was some evidence Devereux uncovered that hinted there were CIA agents, Department of Defense officials, and exiled Vietnamese government officials involved in some of these transactions. It was also learned that Chuck was serving as an involuntary witness for the Arizona Attorney General's office involving some sort of shenanigans at a local Arizona bank, plus... He was involved in another investigation where the Arizona attorney general was trying to take down some known organized crime family figures. Devereux is certain the FBI has a file on Chuck, despite them claiming not to know the man. Devereux insists he was aware of the FBI's involvement in the investigation, that the FBI interviewed Chuck's attorney, And the FBI was just generally all over this case for a period of time. Even a Freedom of Information Act response claimed the FBI had no knowledge of Chuck. Devereaux believes Chuck was working for the FBI, and that weird $2 bill with all the notes on it was intended for the FBI. It was written in some sort of code he suspected. One of Chuck's daughters opined that her father had discovered some information on several important people in Tucson who did not want that information to come to light. So she can throw even more villains into the story. And remember that note we talked about that Chuck said his dad should find should he ever disappear for a second time? Yeah, that note was never, ever, ever found. Okay, so my thoughts on this one. Um, so my knee-jerk thought is, holy God, how did Chuck live such a complicated life? I could never cheat on my wife for a variety of reasons, one of which would be, there's no way I could juggle handling two relationships at the same time. Yet here, Chuck's trying to keep his family happy, the mafia happy, the state government happy, the federal government happy, and maybe even more folks. I mean, frankly, I'm surprised he didn't die from a stroke. I mean, seriously, though, I I wish Chuck were alive so he could learn the timeline of how all of this fell into his life. I mean, I, I have to say, regardless of what all happened, Chuck was a mentally tough dude, and he had to be quite smart to keep doing this for four years uh, before finally committing some sort of error. All right. Um, I want to deal with the obvious first, which is the suicide stuff. It's junk. and all three of the deaths we've talked about, Chuck's, Johnston's, and Casilaros. Uh It's clear forces conspired to ensure these deaths were not investigated any further than was necessary. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about the 1970s. During this time, from my research, according to the U.S. Department of Labor statistics I could find, Police officers were making between $10,000 and $18,000 per year. That's for patrol officers through senior lieutenants. Meanwhile, the people Chuck were working with were using him to launder a billion dollars a year. And again, he's not the head honcho in the laundering scheme. He's just one of many tools that they used. So I think we can safely assume several billions were being laundered just through Arizona. So how difficult would it to be for the mafia to come up with a bribe to make a senior officer agree to classify a death as a suicide? I imagine they could throw $50,000 down on someone's desk and buy enough influence to say what the ultimate result of an investigation is. And that's probably way more than was actually paid. In today's world, I have had cases where law enforcement officers looked the other way on certain crimes, felonies included, for a mere few hundred dollars a pop. Obviously, I'm of the mindset that there were key officials who were being bribed, and that's assuming the mafia was the only one putting pressure on the police. If we have the FBI or the CIA or the Attorney General's office trying to push the police in a certain direction too, it's possible that a bribe was even needed. That may have been enough just to have his death ruled a suicide. Now, just to cover my bases on the suicide theory, I've touched on this some, but we're going to do it again real quick. Chuck's death is just too weird to be a suicide. He's on his knees. He uses his non-dominant hand to shoot himself in the back of the head, not the side, the back of the head, while leaving no fingerprints on the weapon, after apparently removing one of his teeth while wearing a bulletproof vest so no one could kill him on his way to commit suicide 40 miles out in the desert. As to Johnston, it's hard to call a gunshot wound to the side of the head where no weapon is discovered a suicide. Dying folks usually don't make much of an effort to hide the weapon they use to kill themselves. In Casalaro's death, I think is obvious, and I've discussed enough on it. But why would he be, <laughs> why would he be cleaning up his blood as he's slowly losing life, sitting in the bathtub? Why would he have fingernails ripped out and be bruised up if this was a suicide? There, there's, there's just too much shady stuff going on in this entire scenario to be okay with the idea that all three of these deaths were suicide. And the rest of the story is also a total mess to sort through. I mean, I don't have any code-breaking experience, so I can't speculate as to what was going on with the $2 bill. I mean, seven Spanish names, seven founding fathers, a map, references to the Bible, um now I did find that Chuck was a member of the Freemasons and apparently Ecclesiastes 12:1 through 7 is a very important part of the Bible for the Freemasons. There could be something there that's personal to Chuck. That part of Ecclesiastes is the is read as the story of a man's life told through an allegory, uh, being young and dumb and developing faith in God and then going through the trials of life and slowly becoming an old man and and passing on. But again, they only rely on verses 1 through 7. The eighth verse that Chuck referenced and the Green-Eyed Woman referenced reads, and I'll quote, The greatest futility, says the Congregator, everything is futile. So maybe this extra verse adds something. It could be an additional clue. Now, I can't find any evidence about Green Eyes, speaking of her. Everything I read is just pure speculation about her. But it's obvious she was someone trusted and also knew about how real the danger He was facing was. I don't know how her calling Ruth to report that he was okay when he was found two days later strikes me. I suspect it's genuine and that Chuck asked Green Eyes to pass along that message. But I I just I don't have anything on Green Eyes. Now I do believe that Chuck was working with the government in some capacity. Again, it's documented by Don Devereaux's research that he was an involuntary witness for the state's AG's office. But I do think he was working with the feds on some level. Chuck claiming to be working with the Treasury Department certainly raises that Spectre. But personally, I'm convinced of his involvement by the fact that the FBI claimed to have no files on Chuck even when they were openly involved in the initial investigation. That suggests to me that he was serving as an informant in some sort of capacity, and the Freedom of Information Act would not require the FBI to turn over any files pertaining to an active investigation. If Chuck was feeding the feds information about these mafia folks, The FBI just couldn't make public the case they were building. By the by, Ned Warren, mafia family head, was sent to jail for 45 to 60 years, about one year after Chuck was found dead. Warren went to jail for swindling all throughout Arizona, and he was known by the feds for being the sort to kill accountants and lawyers and others who showed the slightest hint of being willing to testify against them. Just saying, that seems a little odd. I'm also of the opinion that poor Chuck was probably a little too naive to handle the situation he found himself in. Again, I think he was a really sharp dude. But I don't think he really appreciated the gravity of the situation. It reminds me of that scene in Die Hard, if you've ever seen it, where that one prick is convinced he can use his salesmanship skills to free everybody from the terrorists, and then he ends up dying a horrible death. You know, the mafia has a code and rules, and so long as you play by the rules and you stay within the code, you're fine finding out that you're cooperating with any form of law enforcement on any sort of issue is going to send up a big old red flag. Trust is everything. And someone who snitches, even on something not related to your business, just can't be trusted. Further, and, and I don't mean for this to come across as condescending as it probably will, But it's almost cute that Chuck thought he could pay off the hitman. If an assassin for a criminal organization doesn't complete his contract, the very next contract that comes down is for that hitman. So the dude had to kill Chuck. There's just no way around it. Somebody's dying being the hitman or Chuck. And... What is there to stop the hitman from killing Chuck and taking the money? He gets paid double. I know he's in a desperate situation, and Chuck thought he was doing the best thing he could. I don't fault him. He's just playing a game he doesn't understand. But Chuck would have been so much better off using that money to buy some fake IDs, fly the coop to some other country, and make it his home. I suspect Chuck got into bed with the mafia thinking that as long as he did his job, he would be in no danger, but them big city boys are slicker than pig snot on a radiator, and you just can't trust them. All right, well, we could easily spend another 35 to 45 minutes just going through more of the craziness here, but I think we've hit the high marks. I can certainly revisit this case if there's enough demand. But as you can tell, my conclusion is Chuck and others were murdered as part of an effort to keep these blind trust shenanigans from going public. And the police were bullied or bribed into going with a suicide story each time. The details, though, and how they all fit together leaves my head a spin in, to be honest. I mean, it's... It's a weird little tale. So let's move on to the palate cleanser. One that's appreciated probably in this week's case. Here is this week's expertly selected joke. What did one plate say to the other plate? Dinner's on me. That's it, high quality. All right, that's a good segue into what lots of y'all have been waiting for. Special announcement time! Yay! Okay, I have created a Facebook group for our little podcast family, and I want you to join. Now, why would you do something like that? Because I'm going to bribe you. Everyone who joins before June 20th, will be automatically entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Just go onto Facebook and search Killing, Missing, Hidden. It should come up. Now, it's a private group. We won't just let anyone in. You're going to have to solve two amazingly complicated riddles that demonstrate your allegiance to our cause to be granted membership. Okay, in reality, you just have to name your favorite episode and identify what we call the joke at the end of each episode, which, if you remember, we just did, and we call the palate cleanser. So, if you can jump through these two little hoops, you'll get in the group and you'll be entered to win. The winner will be announced as part of our 25th episode. So, remember, you have until June 20th. But why wait? Just go ahead and do it today. Sign on in. Now, I'm no web guy. It's not pretty looking. But you know what? You'll be there with other people who like the same things that go on in this podcast. So you'll make lots of friends. It won't be scary, I promise. Now, it'll also be worth hanging around the group after the prize is awarded because we're do some special events periodically. That will all be open only to my little minions. And I'm also going to let you all have a say in the schedule we make going forward. What topics we do when. What topics we don't do. Things like that. Maybe you'll even get the opportunity to do greater things. Like share your own stories on the show or be made governor of a province of your choice when we take over the world. You know, I don't know. The sky's the limit for us. Okay, well, that's enough nonsense for one week. As always, please rate us and leave a review if you like what we're doing here. Why do I say that? Because that's how we get discovered by new folks. That's how we get new listeners, new minions, possibly people that could work as your underlings in your own province. And you know be like Dr. J just say some kind words and maybe we'll we'll give you a shout out. As always if you want to share one of your favorite episodes with your friends or coworkers that would be appreciated. Maybe your brother will find the story of the severed head found out in rural Pennsylvania fun. Hey, perhaps that cute waitress you have a crush on really dig the story of the Scottish hacker who undercovered All of America's alien secrets. Who knows if you don't try? That's what I'm saying. Let's just give it a shot and see what happens. Okay, well, the clock I'm looking at tells me it's time to put the chairs in the wagon. I'll be back next week to talk about weird glitches in the world. Be good, stay safe, and know that I love you all. Thank you for listening to Kellen missing, hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.